Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read Psalm 80 and dive in and see if we can uh, scrape a little meaning off it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can study this group of Asaphic Psalms. We pray that you would help us uh, to gain insight into them and the images communicated there. Uh, we ask this uh, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. So we are up to Psalm 80. Even though in a couple of weeks on Palm Sunday, I, um, no, I, guess, I guess I'll be here for Sunday school. I won't be here for evening service, but I'll be here for Sunday school. So we might actually finish uh, the Asaphic Psalms uh, by the time I end up leaving. So, but now let's um, read this. Uh, this psalm is unique because there's two big images here, the shepherd imagery and the imagery of the vine, but uh, let's read this and then we can talk about those. To, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, and let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. For you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, it shoots to the river. And when you have broken down its walls, why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field, feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock of your right hand planted, for the son whom you have made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Let your right hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, uh, that we may be saved. Um, so we've been talking about silence uh, as a theme that's echoed throughout these various psalms. And Psalm 80 wrestles with a different kind of silence, the problem of uh, the abandonment of a flock of God by their shepherd. So Psalm 80 and 81 that we'll deal with next week kind of hang together, um, and it's uh, people's plea for God to turn back. You probably heard the, the theme in there that's very similar to the ironic blessing, um, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make your face to shine upon. Uh, that occurs over and over again here. Uh, this is a community, as far as genre, I've been trying to um, acclimate you all to getting used to asking what kind of form this is, and this seems to be another communal lament uh, 
um, which is very common in these Asaphic Psalms. Uh, and then you have these two images that are very prominent, um, both uh, the vine imagery and then also the shepherding imagery uh, that come together in a really nice tapestry here. Um, to talk about a location, we're not absolutely sure when this was composed or whether it went through some development. The Greek translation of uh, this Hebrew psalm, the Septuagint, uh, has the title at the top concerning the Assyrians. So that seems to be a reflection of the Assyrian conquest that began in 745 against the northern tribes and culminating in 722 when they sacked the Assyrians and then uh, plundered and the ten tribes um, were demolished or uh, went away, never came back, paced the Mormons. Um, so... Um, and then there's also an allusion here to Joseph at the beginning of the psalm, okay? Um, in verse 1, O shepherd of Israel, gear ear to the one who leads Joseph like a flock. Um, so that may be a reference to uh, northern origin, although in a minute we'll talk about that. There's some, some problems. We're not sure if that was originally the origin or maybe there was an inclusion uh, the southern tribes, uh, or if it went through some kind of development. We can talk about that in a minute. Um, but anyway, I'll just point that out. Uh, Jacob, interestingly, uh, uses the epithet shepherd the stone of Israel to refer to Joseph in Genesis 49, which is the testimony of Jacob when he gathers his sons around uh, to give his last words, basically. And also in Genesis 48:15, he calls uh, Joseph... Uh, my shepherd. So people land upon that and think, well, perhaps there's some northern tribe origin there. Uh, in order to understand the shepherd imagery, it might be helpful to talk about pastoralism in uh, ancient Near East and in Israel. So remember, pastoral is not just the office of pastor, but uh, pastoral land where uh, animals grace is what's meant by that. Um, and this was pretty common in uh, Mesopotamia from way, way, way back in Abraham's time, the time of the patriarchs. Um, and we know that animals were domesticated in Mesopotamia going way, way back from the earliest periods of written history. And um, so um, then you... The reason we go there is to say, well, that begs the question, what were the responsibilities of a shepherd uh, at um, the time of the composition of the Psalter and then uh, throughout um, the time of ancient Israel? And so the shepherd had a lot of responsibilities. One was to protect the flock that he had. So there were lions and tigers and bears, so to speak. Uh, there, there were lions and bears, uh, we know, in ancient Israel through hundreds of years of warfare and deforestation. They're gone now and have been gone for quite a while. Uh, but there were ravenous animals that they had to be protected from. Um, and usually these made up sheep and goats, uh, if you will, and they drank goat milk. So when it talks about the land flowing with milk and honey, uh, we're talking about probably dates or some kind of uh, sweet nuts or honey even that's used in, in their regular staple of, of food. And then um, the, the 
Goat's udders would be full was the idea, so that you had uh, goats that were a source of uh, nourishment with regards to milk. Uh, but you also had to protect the animals from climatological dangers as well. So when we get the Scirocco winds here off the east, those are the exact same kind of climatological conditions that exist over in Palestine and Canaan at the time because of the shape of the mountains and the deserts and the sea. And as you know, these can bring about a lot of destruction, fire, withering of plants, and, and uh, it can be harmful to animals because then uh, they wouldn't have a, enough uh, water to drink, and so the shepherd has to constantly make sure that they're taken care of as far as uh, food and water. But even more importantly, this kind of imagery of shepherding gets applied in the Bible, metaphorically, to kings. So kings are often referred to as shepherds, either good shepherds or bad shepherds. Um, <clears throat> and this is all over the ancient Near East, so it's not surprising when we see this shepherd, shepherding imagery applied to uh, kings in Israel. So to be a good shepherd often meant to be a good king. So for example, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we see uh, the leaders invade against and criticize for not being good shepherds of the people, and so God's going to raise up a good shepherd who will, who will watch over and care uh, for the people. Uh, this is very common in the Kota Hammurabi, as I tried to put a couple snatches of the Kota Hammurabi in there, if you've not heard of that. Famous law code. This was one of the most famous law codes in the ancient Near East. Uh, the best extant copy of which is in the Louvre in France, and um, a stele about this big, this tall, so a kind of obelisk-shaped thing. And then we have some copies elsewhere, too. And uh, Hammurabi lived and reigned in 1750, but this law code became a pretty standard law code throughout the ancient uh, Near East. And uh, it has a uh, prologue and an epilogue written in old Babylonian letters, which was a different script than the uh, 252 laws that are written in Neo-Assyrian Akkadian script, uh, very different. Um, <clears throat> but this was probably more like, not like we're used to in America, where we, our legal system is based upon statutory law. So when somebody commits a crime, uh, whether it's civil or criminal, uh, then um, they are used, that case is usually adjudicated based upon statute. So that's why in uh, lawyers' offices uh, you see, uh, you know, statute after statute, you know, all these books. Um, whereas um, the kind of law they practiced in the ancient Near East was more along a British system, that's not meant to be anachronistic, but just to provide a hook, of what's called common law. And so here, something like the Code of Hammurabi, or the laws expressed in the Bible, so for example, in Exodus 21 to 23, we have what's called the Covenant Code, which interestingly has laws identical, absolutely identical to uh, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, like the goring ox laws and those kind of things, or striking up, um, two men get in a fight, and the woman who's pregnant you know, tries to break it up and gets struck in the womb and then has the issue of the baby and that kind of thing. Well, that's right out of Hammurabi too. Um, or vice versa, uh, but we won't get into that problem. Um, so here you have laws that are meant to not necessarily apply to individual cases, uh, but rather to um, 
through a system of casuistry, so principles being applied to a situation, uh, then a case would be adjudicated based upon those principles that are embedded in those laws. That's probably much more than you wanted to know about there's a system of law. But uh, <clears throat> what's interesting here is in Hammurabi already we see uh, that Hammurabi uh, is identified as a shepherd. So if you look at the one law there, Anum, who's the supreme god in the pantheon, Enlil, so they're pantheists. I mean, not pantheists, they're polytheists. They have several gods. To make good the flesh of the people, they name me. I am Hammurabi, the shepherd, called by Enlil, who heaps up together abundance and plenty, provider of everything, bond of heaven and earth. And then the next one as well uh, shows you that um, Hammurabi and a lot of ancient Near Eastern kings are looked upon to be the provider for the people, to protect them, um, to supply for them. Uh, if they weren't rich and you couldn't afford an advocate like a lawyer, then the king had the responsibility to advocate on your behalf. So all of this shepherding imagery is extended mer- metaphorically to leaders. So that even if you look at Hosea uh, chapter uh, 4.16, I'll just read that real quick. Because it's interesting how this uh, comes out. Not only is it applied to human kings, this kind of imagery, of course, is applied to God himself. So he says there, uh, Hosea says, Like a stubborn heifer, cow, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? So see, even the shepherding imagery is uh, applied to uh, God himself, uh, which is important. Okay. Um, so now, as far as geography... Um, Determining, if you can, the geographical origination or situation of a psalm is helpful in trying to understand the meaning of a given psalm. Sometimes you can determine that. Sometimes you can't. Um, And so there's a kind of interpretation that happened after the Enlightenment that almost all higher critics are... Um, enslaved to, and interestingly enough, a lot of conservative evangelicals, namely that the way we understand the meaning of a scriptural text is through an act of imagination, trying to reimagine the original horizon of a text, and, and then say, how is that text speaking to that original horizon? And usually that's thought to exhaust the meaning of a text. But of course, we don't believe that that's true. Because the Holy Spirit is also working through psalmists, through prophets, to make a text not only applicable to the original situation, but also applicable to the church later. And so even though you have a single sense that you're trying to plumb the depths of, um, when <clears throat> you can't, and if you haven't been noticing, this is how I preach to you all the time, <laughs> uh, when, you, when you can't, reduce that text to the original historical horizon, and there might be a, a verse or a meaning with surplus of meaning uh, that's there for a future um, audience, uh, then, then we try and, and understand through analogies, this is Calvin's method, uh, about the church, how that text may apply in a much later time, perhaps even in a way that the original author, human author, didn't anticipate, although the divine author always anticipated. Um, so, um, 
if that all sounded like, you know, somebody just opened up a fire hydrant and just started pumping out water, um, to just let it go. But, um, but it's important, and even here. So um, I don't know about maintaining a northern origin for the composition of this psalm. So, for example, Benjamin may symbolize the southern kingdom um, in this um, psalm. And uh, we don't know for sure. There's other little clues uh, that it may not just be tied to uh, northern uh, origin. So if you look at verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might, come and save us. Um, so there's other factors as well that this may not be restricted to just the north. Now, you'll, you saw or heard, hopefully, uh, this repeating refrain, which is very interesting. O God, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, that we may be saved. Okay, well, that's almost right out of the ironic uh, benediction from Numbers chapter 6, um, which is interesting. And then uh, as we march through the psalm, um, we don't know what the beginning part, according to the lilies, the Hebrew word is shoshanim, and we don't know what that is. It may be a tune. Um, that it was played to. Uh, I'm sure our accompanist or people on the Psalter Hymnal Committee would probably have died to know, but we don't, we don't know for sure. Uh, it doesn't matter, uh, really. Uh, but there it is. And, um, and then notice it begins in this lament. Oh, Lord God, how long will you fume against the prayer of your people? Um, so verse 4 uh, you have fed them with the bread of tears. You've given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. And then restore us, O God, a host. Let your face shine. So we get that repetition again. Um, now, it's interesting here. So whatever was going on, this is like we've seen, you know, is this the destruction of the temple? Uh, is this exportation of some of the people? Probably but what's interesting here is, um, like Psalm 74 we saw, where uh, the temple had been desecrated and Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the people, maybe long time after, maybe close to the event, sitting around looking at dead bodies, looking at, at, uh, at uh, you know, buildings collapsed. And, you know, in our lingo, they're dealing with PTSD memories of all this trauma and shock, and, and now they're looking back upon it. Um, but in this psalm, perhaps unlike the previous one, Psalm 74, there's no doubt that they recognize their pitiable condition as their own fault. I mean, you can, you can pick that up here in these verses. Uh, so uh, their life is but a veil of tears, uh, drank in full measure. It literally means in a third. We don't know for sure what it means, but probably means something like in, in a large measure. Uh, but they take responsibility uh, for uh, that, okay? And um, they recognize that uh, it's no one's uh, uh, fault uh, but their own, okay? Um, and then we shift into this vine imagery. So it's very interesting to get all the shepherd imagery. But then you shift into this vine imagery, uh, in verse 8 and following, all the way through verse 13. So you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. Now, I've been 
trying to sensitize you all to, um, without some of you, per perhaps fellow uh, former students in particular, thinking I'm just obsessed with the Exodus imagery. Uh, but um, this is right out of the Exodus motif again, and the Exodus theme. Uh, so you removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and uh, planted it. Uh, we'll listen to Exodus chapter 15, which is the song of the sea. So you will bring them in and you will plant them, same Hebrew verb, on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Uh, so right out of the song of the sea, now you have this allusion back to the Song of the Sea that, remember, their ears would have pricked up and heard right away because the way they understand salvation and vindication and deliverance from en en enemies is through this kind of Exodus grammar. When you talk about the Hebrew of old, you say, you know, well, how were you saved? They're going to talk <laughs> in terms of the Exodus. For them, that's their categories to talk about salvation, ultimately believing in a Messiah who will come. Um, so... They're saved in the same way that New Testament saints are saved, right? Um, so um, believing in a Messiah who will come, uh, we believe in a Messiah who has come. But all that's cloaked and categorized in Exodus uh, garb. And so I try and introduce you to kind of a technical term there. Because um, this is a book, but that's okay. This is a Sunday school, so um, place of education. <laughs> <laughs> and I use this word here called metalepsis. Now, what's that? That's a literary term. It's not that hard. It's a literary term where an author, subsequent author, refers or alludes back to an earlier writing in order to evoke in, in one's mind that whole context of the earlier writing. So, how does that apply? Like here without even explicitly doing that. And we do this all the time in normal conversation, especially in books. Um, you know, this congregation full of people have been reading their Bibles their whole life long, or at least a good portion of their life. So I can say things up front in the pulpit or from the lectern and, and invoke this kind of thing without even identifying, you know, with this technical name what it is. And you just go, oh, you know. Um, so when they hear vine language and replanting a vine, uh, they're thinking Exodus. They're thinking, you know, so that's metalepsis. They're thinking a bigger context. Oh, he's referring to God who rescued people from the tyranny of uh, Pharaoh and from that hard bondage. And then he took this vine and he planted this seedling in their own land in Canaan, you know. And so all these fuller contexts uh, is, is primed in their mind, uh, and that's uh, what they would be thinking. Um, or, as I allude to here, Jeremiah 2.21 is almost an identical uh, reference to. Yet I planted you as a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned regenerate and become a wild vine? Okay? So they're also thinking... God had good intentions for this vine. Or they may have even been thinking of Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 27. Uh, there, God is portrayed as a viticulturalist who, who develops a vineyard. And he said, I did everything possible so that uh, they would prosper and produce good grapes. 
And what has Isaiah said? They didn't produce good grapes. They only produced bad grapes, okay? And so they may also be having some pangs of conscience while they're confessing here. We're in this horrible, dilapidated state. And, um, you know, you, you saved us and you took us as a vine and you intended to plant us in our own land. But now look at what kind of uh, shape uh, we're in. In fact, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, filled the land. Verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Uh, it sent out its branches to the sea, its roots to the river. That's the Euphrates. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Okay, so now you get you know, this beautiful paradisical imagery. And, and, uh, but... Uh, it's not inhabited anymore. So now the animals come in and, and chew on the, you know, like the deers, you have to put fences up to protect, you know. Um, we don't get that down here in the city, but some of you up higher up, you probably get some of that. And um, so, um, so that's the imagery what's, uh, which is uh, going on here um, in this tapestry of images. Um, so maybe some positive. Uh, but also uh, some negative. And then in the next major section here, the psalmist pleads that God would take notice of the sad condition of his vineyard, verse uh, 14 to 17. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, uh, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they've cut it down. Uh, may they perish at the rebuke of your face. Okay, so there's one of those imprecatory statements we were talking about before. Okay, they're praying that uh, because of, um, they're not behind the times. They, they have some veiled understanding of this being a kingdom ahead of the times. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong uh, for yourself. Now, this, this statement sounds messianic. And for good reason. So there on the second to last page of full text, not the end notes, I try and explain what I think is a responsible way to get to the messianic notion here. So I say the passage sounds messianic for good reason, but let us understand the text in its Old Testament context first. And then we will understand the import of the verses as New Testament Christians more fully. So notice the plea is for God to have mercy on the vine which he has planted. Uh, for the son, uh, the son for whom you made strong for yourself, well, what does that refer to first and foremost? That refers back to the vine, the whole vine. However, then when you look at 17b, in other words, the latter part of verse 17, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So there I quote Derek Kidner, who says, <clears throat> um, a line which carries the whole thought a stage further. The context, therefore, first and foremost, points to God's firstborn, the right-hand man among humanity. So Israel was the firstborn son of God. There's not a lot of adoption language in the Old Testament. There's not a lot of father-son language, surprisingly, in the Old Testament. But in Exodus chapter 4, verse 23, I think it is, um, God says through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, 
let my son go. Why? So that they may go and worship me. You know, implied on the other side of the Nile, um, or in the other side of the Red Sea, Reed Sea. And worship me at the mountain of my choice. 422. So thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve you. So Israel, first and foremost, is the right hand of man, the right hand man among humanity. But then as I say in the quote there, so if you have it in front of you, you can see it or you can just listen along. The right hand and the sun ought to be read with large characters for the purpose of making this illusion obvious. The son of the right hand is the son who stands at the right hand of his earthly and his heavenly father and who is consequently protected by him. Um, so Genesis 44.20, his father loves him. Deuteronomy 33.12, the beloved of the Lord, they are to be considered as explanations of the name. So insofar as Jacob gave his significant name to his son under the guidance and inspiration of God, it was a pledge of the divine love and help for him and at the same time for all Israel with whom he is interwoven. So let's uh, pull some of this uh, together here. So now we're prepared at least um, in a quick thumbnail sketch of some of the meaning at the original horizon to understand the fuller canonical context of how we ought to understand uh, this imagery and also this reference. So in other Old Testament passages, this corporate imagery of Israel's calling becomes focused on a single figure who alone fulfills it. He fulfills the vine and the Son of Man imagery. So not first and foremost, but as we march through redemptive history, we see the scriptures then apply this kind of imagery and this kind of reference to Christ himself, the Messiah. So the psalmist also pleads with God that he will enable his king, the son of his right hand, to arise and deliver them from their self-imposed bondage because they sinned. And that's why the city has been trampled upon, perhaps the the uh, temple, um, you know, dilapidated and, and destroyed, uh, to arise and deliver them from their self-imposed bondage and their pitiable condition. So indeed, in the original psalm here, this is truly the cry and petition that God would restore their condition and restore and strengthen Israel's king. So now we're ready to ask the question, well, where did this all happen? This all happened in Christ, Okay, so, um, so then you fast forward to uh, uh, the evangelist, John, and you see that uh, all these threads come together in this beautiful diamond of Christ. Okay, uh, so look at what um, uh, Richard Hayes says. I quote him in this block quote if you have it in front of you. And he appeals to Psalm 80, verse 17 to 18. He says, the evangelist John transforms the image of the vine into a Christological symbol. So a symbol focused on Christ. Just as Jesus embodies the true meaning of Israel's temple and its religious festivals, so also he now becomes the true vine, John 15, 1. 
the figural fulfillment of the nation's identity and hopes. So see, corporate Israel was called divine, but who's the true son of Israel? Who's the true Israel? Well, it's no one less than Christ himself. Okay? So not incidentally, Jesus also embodies the hope for a king as the son of man to save the nation, as in Psalm 80, verse 17 and 18. So as with the other Johannine Christological symbols, that just means Christ symbols in the Gospel of John, we have examined. Here also Jesus does not negate or reject Israel's sacred tradition. Rather, he reveals the figural meaning latent in the tradition. So what Richard Hayes means by that, and in some ways I demur from his method and language, but I don't want to get off on that. What he means by that is, well, what I mean by that and by quoting him is, the original psalm has a single sense. And it has a historical sense. But together with John Calvin, Old Testament scripture can have a single historical sense and a single literary sense, but with multiple reference points. Where's my board? <laughs> so in other words, uh, when, 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 Joel, when, when Joel the prophet says, I will pour out my spirit upon the young and the old, Okay, and so this is called the democratization of the spirit. I preached on this passage months ago. Okay, and there's all this day of the Lord imagery. Okay, the, the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be... Well, where does that occur? Well, that occurs at Pentecost. That occurs when Jesus is crucified. It also occurs when Jesus comes again at the second advent, which hasn't happened yet. And it also, in some sense, happened in Joel's day. We don't know when Joel was written, sometime between the 8th century and the 3rd century B.C. So see, it has a single sense, but with multiple potential reference points because God, as the divine author, can take, whether it's Joel or whether it's verse 17 and 18 here, with divine imagery and the kingly imagery and the son of the right hand imagery, can take that, and the technical word is instantiate it. In other words, establish a meaning at a later time in order for Christians of a completely different horizon to learn from and to be edified by because that's the nature of Scripture. And the human author doesn't, his intentionality doesn't matter as much as the divine author's intentionality. And the divine author's intentionality is that this audience, whoever they were, uh, would get it and be edified and look to the Messiah to come. And uh, the divine author, through the Holy Spirit, through his secondary means, namely me, standing at this lectern, is trying to get you to see that you're to be edified by it too, even from our historical horizon, seeing that Christ has come and fulfilled divine imagery because he's the true son of Israel. And Christ has come. He is the true son of the right hand, the king who fulfills all this prayer language for raising up another king. And he is the one who is ultimately the vine, as John says. I am the vine. So, which is a good prayer for preachers. That's what I pray coming down Highway 15 every time. I learned it from John Piper. You are the vine, and the branches can do nothing apart from you. Right?
So, Lord, please use me this morning to feed your sheep. Right? So, so Christ, Christ is ultimately uh, the vine, and he's the one that produces a church that will have good grapes. Like, like Israel, this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. So the church is the fulfillment of Israel, okay, in Paul's view in Romans 9 to 11. So it's not like the church replaces Israel. Paul said in Romans 9, 6, not all who are of Israel really are of Israel. In other words, really spiritually of Israel. Most translations said, say not all who are Israel are truly descended from Israel, but that's not what the Greek text says. It says they are not they're not of Israel. They're not really spiritual Israel. This is spiritual Israel. So did you notice when I read the psalm, opening worship this morning? Psalm of Zion. How beautiful you are in the heights. Praise the Lord. Well, that's addressed to you. Okay, so you're the true children of Zion who now praise God at, um, at the uh, heavenly Mount Zion with the church of the firstborn, those who have gone before us. So, um, now, also on the last page, and then I'll, we can open up for questions, Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd. Remember John 10, verse 3, the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. And then it ends with this wonderful uh, plea and prayer at the end um, in verses 18 and 19. Um, so, I'll read 17.2. Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. And then once more the ironic blessing. Restore us, O God of hosts, Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Uh, So the sublime psalm answers the people's bewilderment with a plea and a prayer for the third time. so turn back um, sounds uh, like what we heard earlier in the psalm. And um, so anyway, the psalmist closes now uh, with uh, a particle that means then to introduce all this. He recognizes that what Israel has failed to do, only a true son of Israel can take the initiative by his hand to accomplish. Verse 17, Israel failed. Moses told him in Deuteronomy 31 ahead of time, you're going to fail, and you're going to go into exile. That was before they failed and went into exile. You're going to do that. (laughs) And uh, so now we need a true son of Israel. We need not only a true son of Adam, you know, a federal head, like under the first Adam, to fulfill all that the first Adam failed to do. We also need a true son of Israel to do all that was incumbent upon Israel to do under the law so that uh, we could be free from the law as a covenant of works. And Christ has done that. And if we trust in him, he imputes his righteousness to us so that we're accepted with God. So I can say in the assurance of pardon, as a covenant of works, the law is not an anvil hanging over your head anymore. God still expects you out of gratitude to obey it. It's a rule of life. But it does not hang over you like an anvil anymore. Yeah, no, it is. It's great news, all right? So, um, and then he ends with this ironic blessing. All right, that was an earful and a mouthful, but so now let me see, uh, are there questions at particular points? Um, 
or comments, or do you want to just leave it on amen, and we could all go home and enjoy the afterglow drive, or uh, yes. If Walter Kaiser were interpreting this psalm, he would want to, uh, even a conservative evangelical, he would want to interpret this song by merely trying to understand what it revealed about how the original audience would have heard this psalm, insofar as we can tell who the original audience was, and that would exhaust the meaning. What I'm saying, and what I try to do is say, no, that doesn't exhaust the meaning of the psalm. We have a human author and a divine author. And even though it, we don't want to deny that kind of hard historical work that's based upon study of the language and all that as well, nevertheless, um, God, the divine author, intends this psalm to have meaning not only for the original audience, uh, but also for many audiences in the subsequent future and ultimately to be applied to Christ. Not to the injury of or the neglect of the original audience or the original sense, but that doesn't completely exhaust the meaning, sense-making that we make of the psalm. Because ultimately we have to take this psalm in its canonical context, all 66 books of the Bible, and understand how uh, this psalm uh, is fulfilled ultimately in Christ as pointing to him as the true king, the true vine, and the true shepherd that never arose even as great as Solomon or David in Israel. Does that help? Luke, 20, Luke 24, walking on the road to Emmaus, with, you know, Jesus with the two disciples, saying the whole scriptures. And I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like all evangelicals comprehensively, you know, I'm not into evangelical bashing, so... So the question, how, do, how, does, how does, if I'm trying to set forth a fuller, more robust view of typology, how would somebody, some certain evangelicals have a less full view of typology? How would they think just... That's kind of what the spectrum is. It's more full, less full, right? They get certain points, but then they miss others. Yeah. So first of all, um, yeah, don't... Don't take what I'm saying as um, 
you know, bashing broad evangelicals, you know, I mean, when I was on an expedition to uh, Denali, Mount McKinley, there were three of us, a broad evangelical who was a pietist and loved all kinds of Fanny Crosby hymns. And then uh, Eastern Orthodox friend and myself, can you imagine the stormbound conversations we had in the tents? Uh, and, uh, and, and the Eastern Orthodox guy, you know, used to just go crazy, you know, because my very good friend, beloved brother Dave Mulkey would be singing these Fanny Crosby songs as we were marching up the glacier. And, but at the end of the day, I go, I take my Jesus that he's singing about in your Fanny Crosby song any day over your Eastern Orthodoxy, you know? So uh, let's just put things in perspective. Um, was that really necessary? I just thought that my outside voice. All right. Uh, so um, often, well, first of all, let me say the, the irony is this is kind of the sense making. This is a technical term for this is hermeneutics. This is kind of the sense making, trying to make meaning, sense out of the scriptures that liberals do this side of the Enlightenment. In other words, that to understand the essence of an Old Testament text, we really have to understand the original historical context through, a, through an act of the imagination that's well-informed, you know, through history study, language study, et cetera, et cetera. But that's it. Unless certain evangelicals would understand, there's a typology here, if you have a direct uh, reference or citation to that passage in the New Testament, like Jonah in, in Matthew chapter 12, okay, where Jesus refers to himself and says that, you know, uh, Jonah was in the belly for 12 or three days, and so too the Son of Man, that kind of thing. Yes, so that's a good point, and, and we don't want to set up straw people and knock them down or be unfavor, you know, uh, unfairly critical or worse yet, you know, commit a violation of the Ninth Commandment by slandering people for views they don't hold. But um, what I'm trying to suggest along the lines, too, with Dan's cue is the whole Old Testament speaks about Christ. Now, we don't want to just jump there. Okay, um, Calvin was quite critical of Luther and others for jumping to Christ too quickly. So, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable doing this, but you'll notice, like, when I try and preach on an Old Testament text, I want you to understand the original horizon first, but then I always try and show you how that points towards Christ, but my understanding is the more you understand the original horizon first, the fuller understanding or greater appreciation you'll have for how Christ is revealed in the passage. But that doesn't have to be done merely through explicit citation. So for those of you who were here at the very beginning of this series, we talked about the rule of faith. So <clears throat> if Christ is one with God and God is revealed in the Old Testament, well then when God is revealed in the Old Testament, Christ is also revealed uh, in that scripture as well. Not as the incarnate Christ, because he wasn't incarnate yet, okay? but nevertheless, uh, he is revealed there, and that applies pressure uh, to the New Testament apostles even before they write. Daniel, you get your mind wrapped around that, and it will transform your preaching. <laughs> No, because now it's not just a matter of, 
having to constantly feel the weight of being justified to go to Christ based upon a New Testament text. Um, it, it's, it's a broader way of interpreting that has to be chastened so our imaginations don't get you know, running wild into all kinds of allegory. But nevertheless, to realize that God already had a book out <laughs> when the New Testament church was formed. And that was 77% of your Bible. Hello? Got a book out already. It's called the Hebrew Scriptures, <laughs> which, which the apostle says are sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, well, what's he talking about when he refers to that? He's talking about the Hebrew Bible. So we should be seeing Christ in the Old Testament, even apart from, I'm not trying to, to in any way, you know... Uh, So see, this, this moves beyond simplistic debates about dispensational versus covenantal hermeneutics. It's not just an issue of spiritual versus literal. It's also a redemptive historical pattern that we see in Scripture. And so at the end of the day, the question that needs to be begged is, um, if the writer to Hebrews sets forth a pattern before us, like especially in chapter 11 and 12, from the type to the antitype, from the temporary to the permanent. Um, and that's the pattern we see throughout the scriptures. That's the pattern basically I was applying to this psalm. Then what's really incumbent upon all of us, not just officers in the church, but all of us, is to read the scriptures according to the way the scriptures uh, interpret themselves. See, it's not, it's not like my way of interpreting over yours in some kind of power struggle. It's ultimately, there is no power here. It's like all of us submitting to the way God wants us to interpret his scriptures. Okay, about time for maybe one more, and then I should have wrap it up. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. However, the way God has explained the Bible, about the lion, about the shepherd, right. about the lion, about this, about that, but about the Right. 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 Yep. Right. Right. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Good. So it's that's right. Yeah, so that's good. Right. 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 
So, so here, that's great, and maybe a good way to even uh, conclude. So um, um, the person in the back, if you couldn't hear, was, was mentioning that uh, uh, the teacher was using too many polysyllabalisms and long words, and uh, you know, I've often been told, you know, that, that uh, it's okay. Um, you know, a, a button, save our polysyllabalisms, you know, and that's where that right here. And uh, so, you know, that's, uh, yeah, my fear... We had a lawyer, a, a pianist in the church back east. She was, she worked for the um, patent office, and they were willing to send her to law school. So she started to study for law school to entrance. And uh, she goes, you know, Brian, I just, I, I, I uh, this was so uh, convicting. She goes, uh, I'm not doing the vocabulary sheets. I just listen to when you're teaching and preaching. I write down all the words I don't know. And <laughs> so I got, oh, uh. so, I mean, as ministers, we're supposed to use plain speech. The problem is you got, uh, no offense, please, you have bunnies and giraffes. And so some people, you know, are ready to drink from, you know, the deep sources. Others just want the bottom line. And so that's your task as a teacher is to hit everybody. And, and so I apologize ahead of time if I was speaking overhead. That's not my goal. But on the other hand, I know I have certain people in the room that, that are ready for that and desire that. But you know what's really interesting? I forget your name. You've, your name? Orlando. But what, what I love about your comment is it actually reinforces exactly what I was saying earlier about the rule of faith. And remember, this whole thing came up when Irenaeus was fighting against heretics. And he said, the pattern of Scripture from Genesis to the Apocalypse, like you say, at the end of the day, what is the pattern? Do you see a king or do you see a dog? If you see a dog, then you're probably misreading the Scriptures. If you see a king, then that's what we ought to be seeing because... That's what the pattern of Scripture teaches. It reveals ultimately Christ the King, our Savior, right? So even if you don't have a, a category for, you know, the talk about enlightenment and the sense-making agenda that the Enlightenment had or don't know who Walter Kaiser is or whatever, that's okay. You still get the point, right? And, and, and you still saw that ultimately this vine imagery and the shepherding imagery, which they failed on, right? Israel's kings and Israel's people ultimately points to one who didn't fail, namely Christ as the true son of Israel, the true king of Israel, right? Who is the vine? Then I go, okay, I'm satisfied. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? And, and you're right, it's, it, it is very important because ultimately, it's the teaching of Scripture, even the typology uh, that's given for our instruction, our edification, our building up. So don't take that away from people. Don't take it away from children. It's all there for helping them make it through this veil of tears in this life, right? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, um, and thank you for... Um, guiding and directing history in such a way and also uh, inspiring the authors of your Psalter and elsewhere 
uh, to reveal things ahead of time, even the gospel ahead of time and before, uh, so that uh, the believing Hebrews could be strengthened, and also that believing Christians can now be strengthened, and that we might draw strength and solace and encouragement from the revelation of your dear Son in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Thank you for that, and thank you for helping us all to grow in our faith. Uh, Help us, O Lord, to live out of gratitude more and more, uh, a holy life as rendered unto you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.